name is Pastor Cody, and I'm glad that you're here. Now, there is this traditional greeting. If you didn't know this, there's this traditional greeting that will be around the world, spoken where either it's the pastor or whoever's up front will say something, and there's a response. So let me give that to you so you're, if you didn't know about this, I say he is risen, and the audience will say he is risen indeed, okay? Got that? So here we go. He is risen. He is, he is risen, risen indeed. Amen. But why is that so important? Seriously. He's risen. He is risen risen indeed. Why is that important? Because we move from tragedy to hope. That's the beauty of the resurrection. This was going to be a very short introduction before we did our first song. But with the current events that happened in Barron County, and maybe you haven't heard, but yesterday afternoon, two of our officers were killed in the line of duty. But it's tragic. They were my friends. And it's been the hardest night of my life. As you know, I serve as a law enforcement chaplain. And yesterday is something we planned for, but we never hope would happen and it happened and it's horrible tragic and I tell you what I need this morning because I am so drained two and a half hours of sleep I have nothing left but he is risen he is risen indeed. indeed and I tell you what as we worship with these songs I might be louder than all of you because I know that death is horrible and it's robbed us. But I tell you what, because of the resurrection, we have hope. Amen? Amen. That's what the resurrection is about. The cross is awesome, I'm forgiven, I'm free, but now we have even more. So we move from tragedy to hope. And I think it's so appropriate that we are to gather together, and I don't know, maybe some of you have known about this event or maybe haven't, but how appropriate that we can just come to the throne and worship the risen Savior who gives us that hope. Life ever new, amen? Amen. So would you just pray with me as we pray for our community, the law enforcement, and the families that were affected. So just join me in prayer. Father God, we just come before you. I'm so broken inside. This is so tragic. Lord, we just lift up law enforcement right now. We are so grateful that they protect us. They take care of us. When we're awake, when we're sleeping, when we need them, they're there for us. And I'm so grateful for our county of law enforcement. We are so connected and tight. We're a family. So I just lift up law enforcement right now. 
There are some, I just was with them this morning, they're, they're struggling. This is overwhelming. Spirit of God, I pray that you work in their lives, that it would turn to you. This is horrible. This is tragic. Death is just so bad. But we have Easter, the beauty of Christ. So God, I know that our church will be heavily involved behind the scenes with what's going on this next week. So God, we are your vessel. Use us in any way. Lord, we lift up the families. The families that I just pray for the one mom that I talked to. I just had to break the news to her. She's still so broken. God, you are that hope. And we cling to you. So we lift up the families. And we also lift up our community. We've gone through a lot of stuff in the past five, six years. We're tired of being on the national news for tragic things. But today is Easter. And you are that great hope. We have new life through the resurrection of Christ Jesus our Lord. So Lord, we thank you that we can tonight, today, celebrate the risen King. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Amen. Stand and join us in our first song. Jesus, a lamb crucified. 
seat for just a brief moment. As a church we gather, one of the primary reasons we gather is to exalt Jesus and that is what we do every Sunday. Every Sunday we gather to celebrate and worship the risen Savior from the dead just as was done on that first resurrection Sunday. Today, as with every other day, you can worship him at all times. We celebrate the king. From sunup to sundown, people around the planet are worshiping Jesus. For he has risen. He has risen indeed. There are many reasons to celebrate Jesus. Some of them are theological. And a lot of times, as you know our church, we spend ample amount of time talking about the theology of the cross and the beauty of it, looking at it from that perspective, as we did last Sunday. There's also reasons to validate our faith that we look at the cross and celebrate the cross. In fact, if the resurrection didn't happen, our faith in Jesus is useless. It says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, And if Christ had not been raised, then all our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. That's why we proclaim him and sing. So let's stand again and celebrate with more songs the beauty of our risen Savior.
rescued us all. His blood has covered us in our belief. Our belief. My shame is taken away. My pain is healed in His name. I believe. I believe.
nations tremble at his voice. All creation rises to
conquered by the King. Resurrected one, shining like the sun, breaking through the fear, victory. Glorified, risen, is risen.
Again, as a church, we are all about exalting Jesus. But we're also about equipping the saints. That's what we're called to do as a church, to equip the saints. We've just exalted the risen Savior in song because he is risen. Wait, how do you know he's risen? I mean, we say this, we say he's risen indeed, but do we actually know that he's risen indeed? That's a great question. Unfortunately, many Christians can't really answer that. They don't have an answer to that question. How do we know that he is risen? Today we want to equip you and give you a historical, logical defense for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The reality of Jesus and his resurrection are historically proven and profound. In fact, there's more evidence that Jesus Christ rose from the dead than even Plato existed. The evidence is overwhelming. Take your Bibles and go to Mark chapter 16. We are going through the Gospel of Mark. For like a year and a half we've been doing this. And we're coming to the end. Mark chapter 16, 1 through 8. Mark chapter 16, starting with verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Solomon, brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. Mark 16, verse 3. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away? from the entrance of the tomb. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen, he is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you'll see him again, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Notice the phrase there, you're looking for Jesus. Do you know that today there are many, thousands, millions of people still looking for Jesus? Today we're not going to give you a bunch of theological truths that we often do here at Maranatha. But instead, what we want to do is help you, equip you with the proofs that Jesus Christ, he is risen, he is risen indeed. And to do that, Pastor Tony and family are going to come up and help us. Jesus. Today, Michelle and I plan to have a conversation as Christian parents with our children about the reality of the resurrection, the reality of the empty tomb, and the evidence there is for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The reality is that many people today doubt that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And this may include some people gathered here today. And it most certainly will include some of our children in the years ahead. 
One of our hopes for today is to model for all of you and to equip you on how to have a conversation about the evidence for the resurrection. Another goal we have for our time together this morning is to help strengthen your confidence that belief in the resurrection of Jesus is a very reasonable belief. This isn't something we need to be ashamed of. So I invite you this morning into the Nord family living room. Come listen in on our conversation. Think carefully with us as we wrestle through the historical facts surrounding Jesus' death. And if you would like, you're also invited to grab a, a piece of paper from behind the Bibles or the hymnals. We put some in the pews last night. And you can write uh, the, along with us, follow along as Michelle and I equip our kids with a tool to help them have a well-informed conversation with others about the, this foundational aspect of our faith, the belief that Jesus truly rose from the dead on Easter morning. All right, family. I'm going to read a quote from a pastor, and I want you to tell me if you agree or disagree with this pastor. A pastor once said, whether or not Jesus physically came back to life isn't important. What matters is that he lives on in our hearts and we can make the world a better place. So what do you think? Does it even matter whether or not Jesus physically came back to life? What would it mean for us if we believe that Jesus was just a good man, a great moral teacher whose life serves as a beautiful model for us to follow, but he did not actually rise from the dead? Is yours on? Hold on. Yeah. Okay. If he didn't rise from the dead, then his dying was kind of pointless. If he didn't rise from the dead because he wasn't able to, then was he really God? And if Jesus is God, but he wasn't able to raise himself from the dead, then he must not be very powerful. Do we really want to serve a God who is, isn't stronger than death? Exactly. And this belief that the res- in the resurrection of Jesus is vitally important. One of the passages Pastor Cody read this morning was from the Apostle Paul, where he addresses why the physical resurrection of Jesus is so important. It was from 1 Corinthians 15. And there Paul says that if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, our entire Christian faith is meaningless. The good news is that we have really good reason to believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And as your parents, we want you guys to be confident in your belief that Jesus rose from the dead, and we want you to be able to have an intelligent, informed conversation about Jesus' resurrection with others who may question this belief. Well, let's begin by examining the historical facts surrounding Jesus' death. These are facts the vast majority of scholars, even non-Christian scholars, agree upon. What's a historical fact and what's a scholar? Those are good questions. Mm -hmm. A fact is defined as something known to exist or to have happened. A historical fact, then, is something in the past that we know actually happened. And a scholar is a person who has extensive knowledge of a particular subject. Basically, a scholar is a really smart person who has deeply studied a certain area of knowledge. So we're going to examine five historical facts, five things surrounding the death of Jesus that the vast majority of smart people who have studied history and the Bible agree actually happened. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's helpful. I pretty much knew all of that already. I'm sure you did, Layla. Well, we've organized these five facts in a way that I hope will help you, uh, help all of us uh, memorize it. Um, that way we can be prepared at any time to share these facts in a conversation with someone else. Layla, 
since you're so smart, Miss Smarty Pants, I've got a hard question for you. Are you ready for it? Of course. What are the first five letters of the alphabet? A, B, C, D, E. You are smart. Now, if you can remember that, hopefully you will be able to remember the five historical facts we're about to look at. So what's the first fact? Okay, we've got our five letters, A, B, C, D, and E. And I'm actually going to use the whiteboard here, and I'm going to draw the face of a, of a clock <clears throat> up on the whiteboard. It's going to help us remember these five facts. And you can grab a piece of paper, if you're following along uh, with us in the audience here, you're welcome to grab a paper and follow, uh, try to replicate what I'm drawing up here. So we're going to draw a circle. That's going to be our clock. We've got a little thing in the middle. <clears throat> and by drawing this out, I'm hoping that it'll help each of you kids to uh, learn this and to maybe even memorize this. And it could be something that you could do uh, with a friend. You could replicate this, and it'll help you remember these five facts, right? So, Layla, what number do we find at the top of a clock? Twelve. Twelve. There you go. All right. <clears throat> and, uh, Javen, what uh, number goes on the right side right over here? Three. Three. Okay. And, Raya, what goes on the bottom? Six. Six. And, Jada, over here on the left side of a clock? Nine. Nine. There we go. So we got our, the main parts of our, of our clock here. Man, Michelle, these kids that you gave birth to, they're pure geniuses. Look what they just did. <laughs> All right. We've got our clock. Now let's add the letters A, B, C, D, and E. But we're going to start by putting our A somewhere around 8.30. So a little bit over here. I'm going to leave some room for, for uh, writing what goes with it a little later on. So kind of over on this side of the clock. The B, um, we're going to put somewhere up around 11. C is going to come over here around like 1 o'clock-ish. The D is going to be just past the 3. And then the E is going to be right below the 6. Okay, so you can do that and follow along. So we got our A, B, C, D, and E. Now D is our starting point for this uh, little tool that we're teaching you because it all starts with the death and burial of Jesus. You can go ahead and write that death and burial of Jesus. So that's what the, the D represents. That's the first nearly indisputable fact that historians and other scholars agree upon. And since it most likely happened between 3 and 4 p.m., <clears throat> we're going to draw a little hand from the clock that kind of points in that direction. And that's just going to remind us that that's where we're starting and we'll work our way clockwise around through this tool. So <clears throat> fact number one is the death and the burial of Jesus. Scholars sometimes still debate whether or not Jesus died in AD 30 or AD 33, but most agree that it happened. It isn't just a story or a fable. Jesus was a real person who lived in real history in a real place called Palestine. He was born in Bethlehem. He grew up in the region of Galilee. He died in Jerusalem. This is real history, and it includes the fact that Jesus was killed. He was crucified by the Romans at the demand of the Jewish leaders. And the Bible records the fact that Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. And because the Bible is actually a collection of many books, this doesn't just represent one source. Rather, we have numerous different biblical authors who describe or mention the death of Jesus. Do you guys know which of the biblical authors talk about Jesus' death? Does Mark? Yes, Mark is one of them. 
And Pastor Cody's been preaching through Mark. And we've been examining recently some of the details that Mark does record in his gospel account about Jesus' death and his burial. Scholars believe that Mark's gospel, which probably came from Peter's testimony, it was one of the earliest uh, things written about the, the story and life of Jesus. It was the earliest gospel account. Mark includes many important historical details, such as the location of the crucifixion at the place called Golgotha. It also includes that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they actually watched uh, when, where Jesus was buried. In Mark 15, 44, we read that Pilate was surprised that Jesus died so quickly and that Pilate gave Jesus' body to Joseph of Arimathea to bury in his own new tomb. So we have a very detailed historical account of Jesus' death in Mark. Where else in the Bible can we read about Jesus' death? Don't all four of the Gospels talk about it? Yes, they do. What's one of the other Gospels? There's Matthew. Yes, Matthew. And you guys know, right? Matthew is one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He also includes a detailed account in Matthew 27 of Jesus' crucifixion, his death, and his burial. Matthew also describes how Pilate instructed that the stone covering the tomb, this big massive rock, that it would be sealed. And he had a guard set in place to prevent the body from being stolen. What's another gospel? Um, Luke. Good. Yeah, Luke's gospel account, it notes that this took place on the day of preparation, which would have been Friday, the day when the Jews prepare for the Sabbath. Do you guys remember what other book Luke wrote, aside from the gospel according to Luke? He also wrote the book of Acts, right? Right. And in Acts 5.30, Luke writes, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead whom you killed, talking to the Jews, by hanging him on a, tree, on a cross. And, and so here, uh, Luke is accounting for the death of Jesus by crucifixion. What's the last gospel that we haven't covered yet? Um, John. John, yes. And John adds a few additional details that are not mentioned by the other gospel writers. Do any of you remember what the soldiers did to the two other men that were crucified with Jesus in order to quicken their death since they wanted them all to... to die before the Sabbath, which was about to start at sundown? The soldiers broke the legs of the other two men? Exactly. And how would that uh, quicken their death? It made them suffocate, right? It is. That is exactly right. And it's an awful thing to think about, right? To ponder what they went through on the cross, what Jesus went through on the cross. The Romans designed crucifixion to be excruciatingly painful. And that's actually where we get the word excruciating. It means, literally, from the cross in the Latin. The crucified men would have to push up off the nails in their feet and pull off the nails in their hands and their wrists every single time that they wanted to take a breath. Just agonizing, excruciating. And by breaking their legs, they could no longer push up to take a breath, and they would die quite quickly. What we see in John's gospel is that when the soldiers came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs like they did with the criminals crucified next to Jesus. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And we will come back to why this particular fact is so significant later. And not only do the gospel writers give historical accounts of Jesus' death by crucifixion, but the apostle Paul writes about Christ's death in his letters, and as does Peter. But Dad, those are all books in the Bible. Are there any writings that aren't part of the Bible that talk about Jesus and his death? Actually, there are. One example is the Jewish historian Josephus, who lived in Jerusalem very shortly after Jesus' death. 
Now, he was not a Christ follower himself, but he does mention Jesus' life and death by crucifixion in one of his greatest works called the Jewish Antiquities. So fact number one, the death and burial of Jesus is a historical fact that most scholars all agree on. Okay, that was a lot, but you'll see later that it's important to establish the fact that Jesus actually died. Now let's examine fact number two. This one goes with the letter E. Now Layla and Jada have asked a couple friends to come and help them with us, so you guys can go ahead and come up, and Jada, Layla, you wanna help them out there? Okay, so one of our family traditions for Easter is baking and eating this yummy treat called a resurrection roll. Each of you can grab a roll and take a bite out of it, and then tell us what you see on the inside. Go ahead, bite it. It's empty. <laughs> exactly, it's empty. You can take it back with you to your seat and show your family or those sitting near you. So we also have a picture of one up on the screen here. So these resurrection rolls, they remind us what the disciples found when they went to Jesus' tomb on Easter morning, an empty tomb. The E stands for empty tomb. That is historical fact, too. If you're following along, you can write empty tomb below the six on your clock because the women who were followers of Jesus most likely went to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body around 6 a.m. on Sunday morning. However, instead of anointing Jesus' dead body, the women found that the tomb was empty. All four gospel writers tell the same story, testifying to the fact that the tomb of Jesus was empty on Easter Sunday. Matthew's account includes some additional interesting details that further support the fact that the tomb was empty. Lariah, can you read Matthew 28, 11 through 15? While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Thanks. Matthew's gospel account not only confirms that the tomb was empty, but we get the additional fact that the religious leaders made up a story to explain why the tomb was empty. Why is this important? If Jesus' body was still in the tomb, then couldn't the religious leaders have just opened up the tomb and proven his body was still there, they would only need to make up a story about the disciples healing the body if the tomb was actually empty. Exactly. So the fact that they tried to make up a different story actually proves that the tomb was indeed empty. Let's move on to fact three. Let's keep working clockwise around our clock. What is the next letter that we wrote on the clock? A as in Layla. You got it. Uh, for this one, we can write the word appearances. Appearances. So we have D is for the death and burial of Jesus, E is for the empty tomb, and then the A is the appearances. It's largely agreed upon historical fact that Jesus' followers sincerely believed that Jesus appeared to them numerous times after his death. Do any of you know whom Jesus appeared to? The woman who went to the tomb? The disciples. Didn't Paul say that Jesus appeared to hundreds of people? That's right. All those are correct. In 1 Corinthians 15, it records that Jesus appeared to Peter, 
the rest of the disciples, and over 500 people. Then to James, who's Jesus' half-brother, and lastly, Paul. Do you remember anything that Jesus did that would prove that he wasn't just a ghost, but he was actually a living person? Didn't he cook fish and eat with them on the beach? He did. Leave it to my fisherman's son to notice that detail. If it has to do with fishing, you'll pick that one up, right? And this is our connection to the number eight. We have appearances over around eight. It's because Jesus ate with the disciples. You guys get it? You get it? Pretty good, huh? See what we have to put up with? Pastor dad jokes. Hey, if it helps you remember, it's worth it. <clears throat> so historical fact number three is that the followers of Jesus sincerely believe they saw Jesus multiple times after he died. Many critical scholars do not believe Jesus actually appeared to the disciples, but the vast majority of scholars, even critical ones, concede that the disciples certainly and sincerely claimed to have seen Jesus appear to them after his death. This leads us to the last two facts. Fact number four goes with the letter B. B stands for brother James. Do any of you know what Jesus' siblings thought about Jesus during his life before the crucifixion? Didn't they think he was crazy? Pretty much. Jesus' siblings were not convinced that Jesus was God during his life and ministry. They may have even been embarrassed by him. At a minimum, his siblings, including James, were skeptics. But as noted in the list of appearances of Jesus after his death, one of those was to James. James's life was radically and suddenly changed by something, and it seems to be the appearance of his brother Jesus alive after the crucifixion. James went from laughing to leading. He may have laughed at Jesus' claims, but something happened to transform him into a key leader in the early Christian church. Let's briefly examine the last fact. Can any of you think of another person who went from being very anti-Jesus to being uh, a promoter of Jesus? The Apostle Paul. Right. And what was his name before he became Paul? Saul. And what was he doing when the early church was forming after Jesus ascended to heaven? He was putting Christians in jail. Right. Saul hated the Christians, and he believed they were a cult that needed to be eliminated. Yet dramatically and suddenly, Saul's life changed. What happened to him on the road to Damascus? He saw Jesus and heard God say, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he was left blind, but God healed him so he could see again. That's right. Saul's name was changed to Paul, and he went on to write 13 books of the New Testament. Paul went from trying to destroy the church to spending the rest of his life building the church. So fact number five is church persecutor. The C stands for church persecutor Saul became Paul. But you can just write church persecutor Paul. Okay, before we keep going, we need to do a quick vocab lesson. Does anyone know what a theory is? What does the word theory mean? A theory is an idea that someone comes up with to explain something. Good. A theory is an explanation. Facts are the evidence. Theories are not evidence. What Daddy just outlined is the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. There are many different theories that try to explain the evidence that Daddy listed. What do you think might make one theory better than another theory? If it makes sense. If it deals with all the facts. Those are both good reasons for that one theory would be better than another. There are actually five criteria that historians use to decide if a theory explains the evidence well, but I'll mention just a few. First, there's explanatory power. How well does a theory explain the real world? And then explanatory scope. 
How does the theory deal with all the facts, or does it only deal with some of them? And then plausibility, meaning is it believable? Now let's use an example to help us think through this. If we came home one day and found a box on our front porch, what are some possible theories or explanations for how it came to be there? The UPS left it there. A friend or neighbor could have dropped it off. Maybe. Aliens are trying to take over our planet, but they can't send down their troops because Earth's atmospheric conditions can't support alien life. So they hired some sea dragons from the depths of the ocean to travel through sewer systems all over the world, depositing boxes of explosives on front porches everywhere, and when the boxes get opened, the houses blow up, and the explosions change the atmospheric conditions enough to let the alien troops come themselves and finish the job of conquering Earth. Interesting. So, Layla and Jada, Javen, how well do your theories explain the fact that the box is on our porch? Pretty well. I would agree. And do your theories deal with all the facts or just some of them? All of them. Okay. And what about plausibility? Is it believable to think that either UPS or a friend or a neighbor put the box on our porch? Yeah. 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 Lariah, what about mm-hmm. your theory? How does your theory hold up in terms of explanatory power or scope or plausibility? Mm-hmm. Well, it isn't as likely to be correct as the UPS theory or the neighbor theory, but it is way cooler and more interesting. <laughs> I agree, it is more interesting, but, and it might be the beginnings of the next bestseller in fantasy fiction, but it's not very likely that your theory explains the box on our porch. In other words, it might be possible that your theory is true, but it is not at all reasonable to think your theory is true. As we look at the various theories that try to explain the evidence that Daddy walked through, keep in mind that when evaluating theories, possible is only relevant in the world of fiction. When evaluating a theory to know how something actually happened, we want to know what is reasonable. And there are a handful of alternative theories that people who struggle to believe Jesus was actually raised back to life have proposed centuries to try to explain and account for these historical facts. We're going to briefly look at five of the most common ones, and we're going to examine how they each fail to account for all the historical facts. All of these could be considered uh, possible, but are they truly plausible? How well do they each explain the five historical facts that we cover? Not just explaining one or two of the facts. So being the brilliant father that I am, I came up with another acronym. Uh, Here we go again. What, you doubt me? Inconceivable children. As I was saying, I have come up with another acronym, all right? And this is going to help us to remember these alternative theories. The acronym is the word CHOOSE. So you can write that on your piece of paper if you have room. C-H-E-W-S. That CHOOSE, not the other CHOOSE. And here's why. This will make sense to you because it makes perfectly good sense to me. So... When a person chews on their food, like a piece of venison jerky, they're beginning the process of digesting their food, right? So these five alternative theories we're about to look at, they are the critics' attempts to chew on the historical facts as they try to digest how those things came to be. So we have the letters A, B, C, D, and E. Those help us remember the five historical facts. 
And now we have the word choose, C-H-E-W-S, and that helps us remember the five alternative theories. We're going to start with the C. C in choose stands for the conspiracy theory. Even sounds cool. Almost as cool as Lariah's theory about the box. Conspiracy. So you can write that on your paper for the C. It goes with conspiracy. The conspiracy theory, it claims that the disciples stole the body of Jesus and then they created a conspiracy claiming that he rose from the dead. So how well does this theory, the conspiracy theory, does it account for the facts that we just covered? Does it account for the death and burial of Jesus? Yeah. yeah. Okay, what about the empty tomb? Kind of. No, maybe. Kind of, yeah, maybe a little bit. Well, it tries to, right? It tries to account for this one, but how likely would it have been that the disciples could have formed this plan and pulled it off? What about the Roman guards? It just doesn't make a lot of sense. What about the appearances or the changed lives of James and Paul? Does it account for those facts? No. Do you see any other weaknesses in this theory? Didn't some of the disciples die for their belief in Jesus? Why would they die for their faith if they knew it was just a lie that they had made up? That's an excellent question. And it makes the conspiracy theory seem a little unbelievable, doesn't it? Here are a few other weaknesses that this theory has. One, the disciples were not expecting their Messiah to die, let alone to rise from the dead. Secondly, uh, the first century Jews believed in a resurrection, but it was a resurrection that was to happen at the end of time. It's highly unlikely that the disciples would have made up a resurrection story when it's not something that they would have ever imagined or expected would happen in the first place. Furthermore, can you imagine how incredibly difficult it would be to try to coordinate such a massive conspiracy with hundreds of people involved? Is it possible? Maybe. But is it reasonable? Not really. There is no record of a single one of the disciples ever recanting or admitting that they made the whole thing up. It just never happened. So the conspiracy theory fails to account for the five minimal historical facts. The H in choose stands for hallucination theory, which says that all of Christ's appearances after his death were really just hallucinations. What's hallucination? That's a good question. A hallucination is a perception of experiencing something with your senses, even though that thing isn't really happening. The perception is very compelling, making it seem very real. Hallucinations often result from a mental disorder or a response to a drug or even a response to grief. The hallucination theory argues that Jesus' disciples didn't really see him after his death. They just thought they did. So how well does the hallucination theory account for the facts? Does it account for Jesus' death and burial? Yeah. 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 What about the empty tomb? No. No, it does nothing to explain the empty tomb. What about the appearances? Does it account for those? Maybe. Kind of. The theory doesn't deny this fact. It just tries to explain it away, saying that the appearances weren't real. The disciples just thought they were real. There are some very serious weaknesses in this theory on this point alone. First, hallucinations usually just happen to individuals, not to groups. And there's no scientific basis for belief in a mass hallucination of 500 people at once. Hallucinations are often based off of a person's hope or expectation. But remember, we already talked about there was no expectation of Jesus rising from the dead in the first place. And if the disciples were to hallucinate, it, they would have been more likely to produce a hallucination of Jesus glorified in heaven. How about the fact of the changed lives of both James and Paul? Does it account for that? No, not really. No, this theory doesn't really make sense of the changed lives of Paul 
and or James, nor does it make sense of why they would even hallucinate in the first place. So the hallucination theory fails to account for all five minimal historical facts. All right, let's move on to the next letter, the letter E. E in this uh, amazing acrostic we've made is embellishment, the embellishment theory. So you can write that on your sheet. Embellishment. This theory suggests that as Jesus' teachings spread, as time went on, they were embellished with supernatural details. What does embellishment mean? In this context, to embellish something means to try to make it sound more attractive by adding a bunch of fanciful details. So so basically, this theory means that Jesus lived an ordinary life, but the disciples added miracles to make it more exciting. Ultimately, those who argue for the embellishment theory think that Jesus' disciples simply made up the part of the story that describes Jesus' resurrection appearances. So, does the embellishment theory account for Jesus' death and burial? Yeah. Okay. And what about the empty tomb? Not really. Not really, right? Because this was a publicly inspectable claim. The claim that the tomb was empty is something that people could go and look and examine the Jewish opponents, they didn't just make that, that claim that, nope, the body's still here, the tomb isn't actually empty. They instead made up a conspiracy of their own that Jesus' disciples stole the body. So what about the appearances? Does it account for those? No. No. It won't do to just write off all the accounts of Jesus' appearances as legendary or mythical because they are dated too early for that to make sense. Eyewitnesses would have still been alive when these uh, reports are being made. And so if they were false, the eyewitnesses would have uh, refuted or discounted any of these embellishments. So they they wouldn't have uh, lasted. It It wouldn't have worked. It doesn't make sense because the account was so early. What about the changed lives of James and Paul? No. No. And there are also some general weaknesses with this theory. One example is the passage in 1 Corinthians that we talked about earlier. That is generally agreed to be a very early tradition, dated within five years of the crucifixion itself. So overall, the embellishment theory also fails to account for the five minimal historical facts. Okay, so as the critic chews on the historical facts, he gets to the W in chews. This one stands for the wrong tomb theory, which simply argues that the witnesses who discovered an empty tomb actually went to the wrong tomb. According to this theory, Jesus' followers may have genuinely believed that he rose from the dead, but their belief was based on an error of going to the wrong tomb. So how well does this theory account for the facts? Does it account for the death and burial of Jesus? Yes. Yeah. What about the empty tomb? Sort of. So it definitely tries to address this fact, but there are problems. First, the tomb wasn't unknown. It belonged to Joseph of Arimathea, and it was in Jerusalem, near the site of the crucifixion. And the women watched the burial of Jesus. Imagine that the disciples did go to the wrong tomb and then start a movement claiming that Jesus had risen from the dead. What do you think the religious leaders would have done? All the opponents would have had to do is say, you fools, you went to the wrong tomb. Here's Jesus' correct tomb. See, his body's right here. Exactly. It would have been the easiest thing to do to prove they were wrong, but that never happened. So it's very difficult to believe that the disciples simply went to the wrong tomb. How about the appearances? Does this theory account for them? No. No. Even if we granted that the disciples mistakenly went to the wrong tomb, how does this explain the appearances of Jesus after his death? It simply doesn't. What about the changed lives of James and Paul? 
No. No, not at all. This theory does nothing to explain the skeptical brother of Jesus becoming a leader in the early church, nor does it account for the church persecutor Paul radically transforming from one who tried to destroy the church to one of its greatest missionaries and proponents. So the wrong tomb theory also fails to account for all five of the minimal historical facts. And the last letter in our acronym chooses S, and that stands for the swoon theory. So you can write on your sheet of paper there, swoon. Do any of you know what the word uh, swoon means? Swoon is a verb of uncertain origin, origin, though it is thought to come from a lost old English verb, swogen. In contemporary usage, it can mean a couple different things, but in this context, it is most likely to become unconscious or to faint. Wow, Jada. That's impressive. How did you know that? I just read it in the script. Oh. (laughs) Well, you're right. Um, In this context, swoon refers to fainting or losing consciousness. Proponents of the swoon theory suggest a possible explanation for some of the historical facts is that Jesus did not actually die on the cross, but he simply passed out or fainted. And after being placed in the cool tomb, he regained consciousness. How well does this theory account for the facts? Does it account for Jesus' death and burial? Not really. Is it possible Jesus didn't actually die from his crucifixion? I would say probably about as possible as aliens delivering boxes with bombs to our doorsteps via sea serpents. (laughs) I think it's very, very difficult to imagine it being possible that Jesus could have survived the crucifixion. It's certainly not plausible. What does plausible mean again? It means believable. It's not believable that Jesus survived the crucifixion. Why? Well, first, the Romans were execution experts. They knew what they were doing. Cold case detective J. Warner Wallace said that it's laughable to think that people who are used to seeing and dealing with dead bodies, like the Roman soldiers, could have mistaken Jesus for dead when he was just unconscious. It's very implausible to think that the soldiers would have made that mistake. Additionally, in John's gospel, we read that the guard did not break Jesus' legs because he was already dead, but instead he thrust a spear up into Jesus' side. The description given in John 19, verses 34 to 35, it says, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. So the guy who witnessed this, like he wanted people to, to notice this. It was an important detail, an important fact, and he's giving testimony to it. And though it is highly unlikely that John knew the significance of what he recorded, he may have seen it as being more symbolic of something else, but we now know that medically speaking, the separation of blood and water, it's a telltale sign of death. This description of what happened to Jesus on the cross gives strong evidence that he had truly died and did not merely pass out. So what about the empty tomb? Does the swoon theory account for that fact? No. No. Well, let's assume for the sake of argument that Jesus did pass out and was placed in the tomb. What are some of the questions that this theory leaves unanswered regarding how the tomb then became empty? How would Jesus have escaped the tomb? Wasn't his body wrapped up in cloth? If Jesus somehow had the strength to roll the stone away after having endured a whipping and a crucifixion and a spear thrust into his side, 
wouldn't the guard have noticed the stone being rolled away? And if it didn't happen until early Sunday morning, how likely is it that Jesus could have survived in the tomb without food or water for several days after enduring such agonizing wounds? It's hard to believe. Those are excellent questions, and I like the way that you're all thinking. The reality is that this theory creates far more questions than it answers. What about the appearances? Not really. No, if Jesus had just passed out and then somehow escaped the sealed tomb, wouldn't he have appeared more like a badly wounded man than a risen savior? What about the changed lives of James and Paul? Does this account for that? No. No. This theory doesn't really explain the sudden and sincere transformation of James and how he came to believe Jesus rose from the dead. The same is true for Paul. Even more, since his encounter with the appearance of Jesus on the road to Damascus was quite miraculous and transformative, far more so than what you would expect from Paul simply encountering the man Jesus who survived a crucifixion without actually dying. So the swoon theory also fails to account for the five minimal historical facts. And there are other theories but all of them have significant weaknesses. So let us end by asking, what is the best explanation that accounts for the historical facts? And then lastly, how should we live in light of that? So Michelle, what is the best explanation that accounts for the historical facts in your opinion? Well, I believe that if you start with an open mind, setting aside any biases or previously held beliefs, and honestly examine the evidence and the competing theories as to what actually happened, by far the best explanation that accounts for all the historical facts surrounding Jesus' death is that Jesus truly and miraculously rose from the dead as the Bible describes. Admittedly, it is not normal or natural for human beings to die and then three days later to come back to life. However, if God exists, a God who could speak the entire world into existence, Jesus being raised back to life is entirely plausible. And in contrast to the alternative theories, it it clearly is the best explanation to account for the various historical facts. Let's walk through them one more time. Does the theory of the resurrection account for Jesus' death and burial? Yes. Yes. What about his empty tomb? Yes. How about the appearances? Yes. How about the change from James from a skeptic to a leader in the church? Yes. How about the change from Saul persecuting the church to becoming a church planter all over um, that part of the world? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Those who are naturalists and begin the entire examination of the facts by excluding anything miraculous or divine, they are excluding the clearest and most plausible explanation that Jesus truly died and was physically raised back to life and appeared to his disciples over the course of multiple days in various contexts. So the resurrection theory clearly, comprehensively, and compellingly accounts for the five historical facts that we've addressed. So if Jesus truly rose from the grave, what does that mean? What's the significance? What are the takeaways that we should have from that reality? First, Jesus, Jesus' predictions and claims to divinity are validated by his miraculous rising from the dead. Secondly, we can have assurance that indeed our sins can be forgiven because of who Christ is and what he has done. And this is truly good news. Also, our faith is not in vain. We can have hope that we too will one day be raised from the dead. And we don't need to grieve as the world grieves. We don't need to be ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation to all who would believe. And we, like the women in Mark 16, ought to be excited to go and tell the good news Let's look one last time at Mark 16 in verse 7. 
the angel tells the women, but go, tell his disciples and Peter. And we also have some incredibly exciting and truly good news to share with others. So let us be encouraged and equipped to go and tell the world that Jesus came as a savior who takes away the sins of the world if people would simply repent and turn to him in faith so that they may receive forgiveness and new life and a reconciled relationship with the God who created them. I invite the worship team to come uh, back up as I close our time uh, exploring these facts with a, a, a time in prayer as the worship team comes up. Father God, I thank you so much that you have given us incredibly good evidence, strong, um, compelling evidence that the belief we hold to, that your word proclaims and teaches that Jesus indeed rose victoriously from the grave, that he came back to life and appeared um, to numerous different people and groups, that that's solid belief. That's a solid belief that we can hold on to. It's not something that we have to be blind to believe. It's actually far uh, more likely and plausible than so many of the, the other alternatives and all of the alternatives. And so God, I pray that today you would embolden us, give us greater confidence in the resurrection of Jesus, and equip us to be able to have conversations with our loved ones, our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates, our teachers, people that you've put into our lives, God. I pray that we would have the courage and boldness to ask them questions about what they believe about Jesus and about these historical facts that best are explained by the resurrection of Jesus. And I pray that as we have those conversations, your spirit would draw people into a relationship, a saving relationship with you, Lord God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. And, and guests, before we sing these last couple songs, I just want to say if you're interested in more uh, details, if you want to dig deeper into any of the things that we discussed this morning as a family, check your email. If you're a part of the Maranatha family, you should have gotten an email uh, this morning. Uh, an email was sent out early this morning with a whole pile of other resources that Michelle has compiled in a document there. And they're all in links that you can click on and see. Um, if you're interested, uh, if you're visiting with us and, and you're interested in that, we don't have your email, just talk to one of us, call the office this week. We'd be glad to pass that along to you so that you can dig deeper on your own. Don't just believe the conversation that we had as a family. Do your own digging and researching. I think you will be blown away. We had to cut like over five pages of, of script out of today to try and fit into our time that we had. Uh, there's just a, a ton of information about this. And so be confident, be bold, um, and, and have the courage to share and have conversations with those that God has brought into your life. So I invite you now to stand, if you are able, and join in singing two more songs of worship to our risen Savior, our Lord and King, Jesus Christ.